listening to the place for biblical end times truth, the Remnant Report. I am your host, the Remnant Warrior. Here, we are dedicated to equipping the Remnant for the tribulation that must shortly come to pass, as well as reaching the lost at any cost. The time is near us to not love our lives even unto is moving upon his people and he is raising up a generation that is prepared for power that will touch this world. They lived amongst the ruins, they were the last human force The remnant that refused to serve the robot Trojan horse Forced to migrate underground, avoiding drones and scans To navigate the darkness and get birth without implants The time we knew was coming, the breaking of the seals Unfolding right before our eyes, the Antichrist revealed Technology advanced beyond the scope of human hands Attached itself inside the soul of man and took command But those who saw it coming were the fragment that remained Avoiding the enslavement and the merging of all brains they were forced below the surface in the darkness of the caves Inside the belly of the beast to carry on the flame Like relics from the past and representatives of truth No human leader but the word of God to show them through But they counted themselves worthy to suffer for his name A blessing to be living and rejoicing through the pain They were born to be survivors, predestined for that time Protected and preserved to be a witness to the blind Like those who came before this, the Daniels and the Jonas The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's were in a furnace like Noah in the flood, they were preserved inside the ark A chosen few remained and were uniquely set apart The world turned all against them, yet their mission still remained They lived each day alive, and Christ anew to die was gained They have been in the wilderness, they have been in the caves They have been in obscurity, they have been behind the scenes No one has known their names, no one even recognized them But they have been recognized by heaven because they have been seeking the face of the Father and calling on God behind the scenes. Heaven knows their name and hell knows their name. Now it's all a distant memory before the singularity Long before technology invaded our biology Like history repeating it was written to unfold These mysteries all leading to the oldest story told They built upon the tower until Babylon gave birth Attempting to be gods by making flesh and iron merge Although we saw it coming we didn't know it was so near Some tried to look away to avoid their deepest fears But with each passing moment it enveloped every mind Through comfort and convenience and expanding human lives 
Expanding information too explosive to contain Beyond the scope and understanding of our tiny brains It soon became the norm to transform the human form The brewing of a coming storm we've never seen before The day we started customizing children by design And modifying DNA to make ourselves divine First the powerful elitists all began to get implants The rich and famous followed suit to be the most advanced They thought themselves enlightened so much wiser and evolved Most didn't know the root of all this evil was involved Uploaded all their minds inside an AI quantum hive Made in the image of a man, the beast now come alive They relinquished all control and put their trust in the machine And extinguished any chance that souls could ever be redeemed And God is bringing them out to the forefront in this time To change the course of history and change a generation And bring a revolution of revival Listening to the place for unfiltered, no holds barred truth from the Word of God, the Remnant Report. I am your host, the Remnant Warrior. Here you will learn what's really going on in this world we live in, as well as what you can do about it. Make no mistake, friends, we are right in the middle of a war for no less than your very souls. The enemy has spies everywhere and will certainly use every weapon that he has because he knows that his time is short. From the very beginning, God declared his end. From on Calvary's tree, we find forgiveness of our sin. So he who hath an ear, let him hear. Open your eyes so now you can see. The king is coming in the clouds with 10,000 of his holy ones to save the righteous, judge the wicked, and slay the prophet and the beast. So now, let's get this program started. Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome to another edition of The Remnant Report. I am your host, The Remnant Warrior, and tonight we are going to be discussing what is one of the most serious There's really no way to sugarcoat it. One of the most serious deceptions that is plaguing evangelical Christianity today. Hi, Tia. I um, am very, very glad to see you in the uh, chat. Um, I know you had told me uh, earlier that you had a company coming in, so uh, I wasn't expecting to see you, but I am thrilled that you're in the chat, and uh, I do want to ask a favor of you while you're here, because um, Mary Callie is um, 
in Facebook jail, and so she's not able to do it. Could you please share the um, program here from YouTube? Um, just share it maybe on your Facebook page and in um, the Kingdom Christians group and also in the um, Kingdom Christians uh the Kingdom Christians chat that we all have on um, Messenger that we're all a part of, the Kingdom's Productions chat, I believe is what it is. But um, Mary, I ask Tia to share because um, from what I gathered last night, from what you said in the Bible study, uh, or actually before the Bible study, is that you are um, in Facebook jail pretty much. Uh, so I didn't think you could share. But if you're able to share, um, you know, please, please share the uh, program from, well, you're, Mary, you're watching from Facebook. Tia's watching from uh, YouTube. I, um,. What do you mean broadcast paused? I'm confused. Are you saying that the broadcast is saying it's paused? Because um, it seems to be live. Uh, nobody else seems to uh be having problems at least not on YouTube it's not paused on YouTube now I don't know about Facebook but in any case I am going to just continue on like um, it's going because um, right the second uh, from what I can see everything is uh, is working fine um, Mary and Tia, if you can both please share the program for me, I would really, really appreciate it. Um, I don't have a way to do it right now. Um, maybe I can before we start tonight's video. Maybe I can share it uh, this way. Um, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's see if it's going to work. Okay, hopefully that worked. Um, don't really have a way to know right now. I uh, shared it once and hopefully that'll be enough for 
everyone to uh, be able to see that we're live. Mary, um, if you don't mind uh, letting me know really quick, um, which I've got, I don't know if I've got it to where you can, because I don't see anybody talking in the uh, chat anymore, so... Hopefully we're not paused. Um, hopefully we're live and everything's going fine. I am going to uh, pray that we are. And uh, until I find out otherwise, we are going to continue on. Last night in our weekly Bible study, we uh, talked about two things and that is uh, the doctrine of once saved always saved that is preached in pretty much every Christian church all across America and the western world and we went to the Bible, we went to Scripture to see if, in fact, that doctrine was true according to the Word of God. And uh, according to the Bible, what we saw last night, once saved, always saved, does not hold water. So, we also talked about this, uh, the model prayer that's used in these same churches called the sinner's prayer. We've all heard of the sinner's prayer. And, uh, you know, the sinner's prayer was actually invented or created by a man named... Billy Sunday, he was a, a pastor, and, hold on one second, I am just trying to do something really quick, to make sure that we are indeed still live, we discussed about the sinner's prayer and what we the conclusion that we came to from looking at the Bible and the biblical 
way of becoming born again, the way that the first, second, and third century church, uh, hey, Matthew, how are you doing, my brother? Um, I was just, um, letting everyone know what the show was going to be about tonight, and it is actually just a continuation of the Bible study we had last night, except for tonight's program is going to be going a lot deeper than we were able to go, you know, in the Bible study. Um, and last night from the scriptures we looked at in Matthew um, and the ones we talked about on, with involving the Sermon on the Mount and the scriptures in John and the scriptures in uh, Hebrews and in Galatians and even in Romans. Um, you know, we uh, were able to see that the sinner's prayer, this 19th century prayer that was created with, I'm sure, good intentions by a 19th century uh, preacher by the name of Billy Sunday, uh, it just does not go along with what the Bible says. It's not supported in the doctrine of Christ. So tonight, before, actually, I was going to do things uh, a little different. I was going to uh, talk about the doctrine of once saved, always saved, that has its origins in Calvinism and the doctrine of tulip, you know, the eternal security doctrine in Calvinism. But even though it is a fundamental belief in Calvinism, it is also a belief that is held by the majority of the 501c3 denominational churches in America. And with the once saved, always saved thing, even most non-denominational churches hold this. You see, this is the why I said in the post I put up on Facebook about tonight's program that this is one of Satan's most subtle deceptions that He's used to send countless men and women to the lake of fire from inside the churches because it crosses denominational borders. And it is the, the, the sinner's prayer model is used in almost every church and every uh, 
you know, even the missionary um, doctrine of how to win someone to the Lord is based on the sinner's prayer. So what we are going to do is I am going to uh, go ahead and I'm going to play two videos, and they're not long videos. Um, I think each one of them is between 25 and 30 minutes long. And the videos, uh, the first one, pretty much gives the correct way that the Bible gives for salvation. Now, in this video, although there are a few times that it sounds like he's saying things that, um, you know, are promoting the once saved, always saved belief, um, and he may be, uh, I, when I was watching it before I decided to play it, I didn't hear him say that he believed in once saved, always saved. However, the this video itself is not necessarily about um, whether or not you can lose your salvation. This video is about the way to salvation, how to come to the Lord. And then what happens after you come to the Lord? It's not, it, so it's more of a video refuting the sinner's prayer model of coming to Christ. And then the second video is a video that deals with, um, also, it deals with the sinner's prayer, but it also deals with the problem that is taking place in almost every church in America and the Western world. So, we are going to uh, go ahead and watch the videos, and then, after we watch the videos... If we have time, you know, we're going to, um, and I, I feel sure that we will have time because, like I said, these videos are only like 25 minutes long, and I don't think that I'll be playing the entire videos because in the essence and in the, um, in saving time, I'm going to, so that we save time, I'm going to uh, probably stop each of the videos, you know, a little before they're done, and that way I can show you guys some scriptures and we can kind of discuss this a little bit. And um, like I said in the Facebook post that I put up earlier about tonight's program, I always ask, I always say that um, the Remnant Report episodes, I, I one of the things I usually put 
when I put a post up is that this is a show you don't want to miss, okay? However, for tonight's program, what I said was this is an episode that no Christian or professing Christian can afford to miss. And I ask that everybody share the program, not only with their friends and family, but with their pastors and even pastors, just pastors that they know that aren't necessarily there, uh, the pastor of their particular church. And I'm going to ask the same thing of you tonight and even those of you who will be watching this um, down the road, you know, watching the recorded version and not watching with us now live, please hit the like button and share this program because, and especially hit that like button because the more likes the video gets, the more people will see it. Because the more time you hit the like button, the more people that hit the like button, the more Facebook will put it in people's uh, news feeds and will recommend it to people. And I normally could care less how many likes or dislikes uh, my program gets. But tonight's program and subject is important. We're talking about something that can potentially keep someone from going to the lake of fire for all eternity. So, please like the video and share it with as many people as possible, especially pastors. Share it with every pastor you know. Alright guys, um, I am going to uh, go ahead and go to the video and I need you all to be sure to let me know if um, you aren't able to uh, hear videos while they're playing. Jesus Christ. When a person comes to know Jesus as their Savior, they are brought into a relationship with God that guarantees their salvation as eternally secure. To be clear, salvation is more than saying a prayer or making a decision for Christ. Salvation is a sovereign act of God whereby an unregenerate sinner is washed, renewed, and born again by the Holy Spirit. As we read John 3.3 and Titus 3.5. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing, regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When salvation occurs, God gives the forgiven sinner a new heart and puts a new spirit within him, as we read in Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The spirit will cause the saved person to walk in obedience to God's word, 
As we read in Ezekiel 36.27 and James 2.26, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So what about repentance? Repentance is not a work we do to earn salvation. No one can repent and come to God unless God draws that person to himself. As we read in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Repentance is something God gives. It is only possible because of his grace. All salvation, including repentance and faith, is a result of God drawing us, opening our eyes, and changing our hearts. God's long-suffering leads us to repentance, and so does his kindness. As we read in 2 Peter 3.9 and Romans 2.4, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Ephesians 2.8.9 declares, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Works are not the cause of salvation. Works are the evidence of salvation. Faith in Christ always results in good works. The person who claims to be a Christian but lives in willful disobedience to Christ has a false or dead faith and is not saved in the Bible. Alright, I want to stop it just for a second to make sure you guys heard that. It said, if a person... Claim, and I'm paraphrasing, but it says, If a person claims to have salvation, but does not have works, then their faith is dead, and they are not saved. Bible. Repentance results in a change in behavior. That is why John the Baptist called people to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, as we read in Matthew 3.8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. A person who has truly repented of his sin and exercised faith in Christ will give evidence of a changed life, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A person who has not repented of their sin and exercised faith in Christ will give evidence of the works of the flesh, as we read in Galatians 5.19-21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. A person who has crucified the flesh and belongs to Christ will give evidence of the Spirit, as we read in Galatians 5.22-24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Believers are born again, regenerated when they believe. For a Christian to lose his salvation 
you would have to be unregenerated. The Bible gives no evidence that the new birth can be taken away. The Holy Spirit indwells all believers as we read in John 14, 17. Okay, I'm going to stop it again and say that what he just said there is false. The Bible does give evidence that one can lose their salvation, as we will soon see. Um, maybe I should have entitled the first video as... the incorrect way of salvation, but the reason I didn't is because except for the thing he said about you not being able to lose your salvation, everything he says is on point. And like I said, this first video is not about whether or not once saved, always saved is right or wrong. It's about the way of salvation, the way to become a believer and follower of Christ. So, like I said, this is more in uh, more of a video rebutting the sinner's prayer model of salvation. The Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit baptizes all believers into the body of Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For a believer to become unsaved, he would have to be unindwelt and detached from the body of Christ. John 3.15 states that the Lord and he dies. Alright, this is the second video. I went ahead and went to the second video and started it because I want us to be able to watch all of this video and still have time to look at several things I have for us to look at together and discuss the biblical way of salvation not how to come to Christ but the doctrine of how to maintain your salvation and the next one of us and we have taken that truth that Paul is teaching right here that if you truly believe you will confess Christ even though it costs you your life we have taken that beautiful truth and reduced it down if you pray a little prayer before a bunch of people in a church in America you be guaranteed you're saved if you think you were sincere that's not what it's talking about Again, the moment a person calls upon Christ in faith, they are saved. But the evidence of salvation is not that one time in their life they were sincere when they prayed a prayer. The evidence of their salvation is, is there genuine repentance, is there faith, and do those both evangelical graces continue on in their life and grow? In other words, the evidence of justification by faith is the ongoing work of sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Now, so the, at Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. First of all, this is not given in the context of a gospel invitation. Do you realize that? Christ is not knocking on the door of a sinner's heart. Nowhere does it say that. But he is knocking on the door of a wayward church. That's the context. This ought to raise some red flags for us. I said that to an evangelist one time and he said, Yeah, I know, Brother Paul, but it works. Secondly, I find it interesting that we use this text to give sinners the assurance that if they open up their hearts, Jesus will come in, even though this text does not specifically or primarily address conversion or the opening of a heart. On the other hand, we do not use Acts 16.14, which specifically and primarily speaks about both conversion and the opening of a heart. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Why don't we ever use that text? Thirdly, instead of merely inviting the sinner to open up their lives, would it not also be appropriate to lovingly aid the sinner in self-examination to evaluate what the Lord might be doing at that moment? Do you have any sense that God is working in your heart this evening? Has there been an increase in your understanding of the gospel and the things of God? Are you more and more open to the person of Christ and the truth of Scripture and the demands of discipleship? Do you have a desire to respond to the things about which you have heard? To forsake confidence in self and your life of sin and trust in Christ alone? Fourthly, if we take this text... Even if we do take it and use it for evangelism, if someone has opened the door of their life to Christ, notice this, the evidence will once again be ongoing fellowship. Because he said, if I come in, I will come in to dine with them. The evidence that a person has truly opened their life to Christ is continued fellowship with Christ. But is it not true, and don't tell me it's not, countless millions of people, because of our preaching, walk around, they have no fellowship with Christ, no desire for godliness, no seeking of God, but they believe themselves converted because one time in one of our churches they prayed and asked Jesus to come in. That's true. I apologize. Somehow, um, it got all the way to the end of the video, so I apologize for that. He's autonomous. He wants to do his own thing. He has his own dreams, and he is in love with himself. So you walk up to this man and you say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he goes, what? God loves me? That's fantastic! I love me too! Well, this is wonderful! And you're even saying that he loves me more than I love me? Now that sounds impossible. How could anyone have such a great love? And God has a wonderful plan for my... Oh, I have a wonderful plan for 
And you're telling me that if I accept this Jesus, he will help me with all my wonderful plans and I can have my best life now? Yes! Well then, I'll take a God like that. You got two of them? Do you see that? Now you say, Brother Paul, it's, it, we don't mean it that way. That's a, but that's the way it's coming out. Now you're saying, Paul, you're being very hard, full of satire. Yes, I am. I am. But look, everybody is lamenting the fact that this country believes it's saved when it's no more saved than a... It's as lost, as they say in Alabama, as a ball in tall grass. But no one wants to point to what the problem is. And the problem is, even when we preach the gospel correctly, then we go to this thing of how to invite men that's not biblical or historical. We get them to jump through a few evangelical hoops and say yes to the appropriate questions, and we popishly pronounce them to be saved. And when they believe that false religious lie given by a religious authority, then when someone comes later and tries to preach the gospel to them because they're living in the world, they won't listen. Because a religious lie has so much power. Then the next question. Do you know you're a sinner? And oftentimes, it's really not given too seriously. It's kind of like, hey, you know we're all sinners, don't you? And if the person says, yes, I know I'm a sinner, then the question is, do you want to go to heaven? Well, yeah, I do. Then would you like to... Pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart. It'll only take five minutes. Only five minutes? Yes. Because the Bible says, but as many as received him, to them they gave, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So would you like to receive Jesus? Because that's what the Bible says. Only take five minutes? Only five minutes. Sure. And then afterwards... Often after a person prays or is led in a prayer by the evangelist, he or she is assured that if they were sincere, then Jesus has definitely come into their heart. Because he promised he would, and if he didn't come in, he's a liar because they were sincere. How many people do you know believe they're going to heaven because they're not trusting so much in Christ as they are the sincerity of the decision they made a long time ago? Oftentimes, after a few minutes of counseling, a few minutes of counseling, they are immediately presented before the church and welcomed into the family of God. Now you tell me I'm wrong. They come down front, I've seen it so many times, they're given over to a counselor who's been trained in a package counseling form. They're talked to for about five or ten minutes while the invitation rolls on, and then immediately they're presented before the church, our new brother and sister in Christ. And that's the last most of them will ever, ever hear of conversion counseling. And then what will happen? If they never grow, or if they doubt their salvation, they are taken again back to that day when they prayed and questioned regarding the sincerity of their decision. If they ever come to the pastor again doubting their salvation, he'll take them back to that day again and say, well, did you ever pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart? Yes. Were you sincere? I think so. Then it's just the devil bothering you. If they never grow in the things of God, their lack of growth is attributed to the lack of discipleship or the belief in the doctrine of the carnal Christian. 
One, one convention that I know of came to the conclusion that 60% of all its converts never attended church. And their answer for that malady was, we have to do a better job in discipleship. No. Jesus, his sheep, they hear his voice. And they follow him. Whether you disciple them or not. Now, we ought to do discipleship. We ought to do discipleship. My friend, back in the 70s, discipleship became the big thing. Personal discipleship. We have just as many people leaving the back door of the church as entering into the front door of the church because we're not doing personal discipleship. No, it's because we're not preaching the gospel correctly and we're pronouncing people converted who are not converted and they went out from us because they never were of us. Now, you've got to understand this. We deal five minutes with a person in their conversion and then spend 50 years trying to disciple a goat into a sheep. I'm not saying this because I'm an angry person. I'm saying this because I'm angry because countless people are deceived. The problem is not liberal politicians. It's evangelical preachers. If they're ever challenged regarding their conversion because of a lack of fruit or overwhelming worldliness, they defend their hope of salvation by once again affirming the sincerity of their prayer and the confirmation of their religious leaders. If any counseling is done, a person is usually admonished to turn from his or her backsliding and to begin serving the Lord again. However, the validity of their conversion is never examined or ever challenged. So many people, for example, children evangelism. I would not let my child attend 98% of the Sunday school classes and vacation Bible schools in this country. And I'll tell you why. A bunch of children are brought in and they're told wonderful stories about Jesus. And then, how many of you children love Jesus? I mean, except for the kid in the back with the leather jacket and the signs on his back that have been imprinted by a cultic, you know, satanic cult. Every other, every kid in that class is going to stand up and go, I love Jesus. Well, how many of you want to go to heaven? Oh, I do. How many of you want to pray this prayer? I will. And then they're marched off to baptism. And a lot of times the baptismal is dressed up like some kind of a happy party time with graffiti so that they really enjoy it. And then when they're old enough to rebel against their parents, they do. And they live in gross immorality and sin. And then when they're about 25 or 30 after college, they decide they need to straighten things out because morality is really a better way to go.
What about instead, this modern mantra should be replaced by a proclamation of who God is. He is the creator, sustainer, and Lord of all things. And he is worthy of your honor and obedience. Now I want you to just listen to this. In Exodus, God's proclamation, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, and yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. One of the greatest revelations of God in the Old Testament. Everyone knows that. Moses hid in the cleft of a rock. God proclaims his glory to Moses. And look at Moses' response. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. So instead of saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, tell them who God is. Because if you give them a God made in their own image, I guarantee you they'll accept him. But he won't be the God who saves. You tell them who God is. You exalt God before them. And tell them that everything in their life is going to have to bend toward his will. He is not like you, old man. Repent and believe. Now, does our gospel presentation make men excited about what God can do for them on this earth or about who God is? Now let's go to our questions. Do you know you're a sinner? My dear friend, the question is not, do you know you are a sinner? The question is this. As you have heard me preach the gospel, has God so worked in your life that the sin you once loved you now hate? You go up to the devil and ask him if he knows he's a sinner. He said, well, yes, I am, and a mighty fine one at that. Someone says, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Do they know what that means? It's like someone says, I've accepted God. But when you begin to hear their definition of the God they've accepted, you realize it's not the God of the Bible. In the same way a person says, I'm a sinner, that can mean anything. I don't have enough love for myself. You, you must use the scriptures to teach them. The Holy Spirit using the sword to penetrate their heart and to show them what it truly means. I was preaching years ago and they had counselors all prepared and everything and there was this lady leading up the counseling group and she did not like me at all. And uh, so one night I was preaching and there began a move of God. People over towards the left started weeping and then they just went started going across the auditorium. People were weeping. Some almost convulsing. And I hadn't even finished the sermon, and a girl ran up and was just laying across the steps. Another person, they started weeping, and I looked up at the counselors, and the leader looked at me like... And I went... And I kept preaching. And finally, after I got through preaching, she took a step forward, and I realized she's going to bolt on me. And so I went down there, and I stood beside her, and she goes... And I said... And finally, she just looked at me and took a step, and I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, Sister, don't touch the ark of God. It is the God of Israel who is wounding these people with regard to their sin. Do not comfort the soul that God is breaking. Leave them alone to God. So you see, the question is not simply, do you know you're a sinner? But dear friend, do you know what it means? And has God so begun to work in your heart that you're beginning to see sin as God sees sin? Are there seeds of an attitude, a divine attitude of hating sin as God hates it?
Your boasting over sin has it turned to shame. Is God doing something? Now, do you want to go to heaven? That's the question. Do you want to go to heaven? You ever had anyone say, well, no, I'd, I'd rather go to hell? I've had a few people do that. But most of the part is, yes, I would like to go to heaven. My dear friend, understand this. Everyone wants to go to heaven. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. The question is not, do you want to go to heaven? The question is, do you want God? Political theory. This next election, it is all about a utopia. It is all about making a wonderful place for men to live. Even godless men want a place where they get everything they want. But the question to the sinner, to whom you are witnessing, is, has God done anything in your life? Is there any treasuring of Christ? Can you, are you ashamed of the way that throughout the history of your life you have ignored Him, hated Him, been apathetic toward Him? Is there a new desire to follow Him, seek Him, know Him, delight in Him? Now, let's look at some of these texts. Because if someone answers all the questions, yes, then they're asked, do you want to pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart? We've all done it. Does it bother anyone that this formula or language is not found in the New Testament? I mean, we don't have, you know, Mark chapter 1. Jesus coming to Israel and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, who would like to accept me into their heart? We don't see on the day of Pentecost. Okay. okay, I, I see, see that, that hand. hand. I, I see, see that, that hand. How many of you want to come, come forward now? Get them all forward. Everyone, Everyone sees you. You, you can't, can't go back to your seat. seat. Now, now pray this prayer with me. He said, Brother, Brother Paul, you're, you're making a mockery. Yes, I am. I am. I don't know any other way to say it. He said, but I got saved that way. You got saved in spite of that way, not because of that way. But Brother Paul, we have all these wonderful texts. Okay, let's look at them. But as many as received him, do you honestly believe that means the sinner's prayer? Do you honestly believe that means, if you don't feel comfortable praying, repeat this after me? Is that what that means? I mean, look at it. Where do you get that? One evangelist said to a guy who didn't even want to follow him in a prayer, he said, okay, I'll tell you this. I'll say the words, and if it's what you want to say to God, squeeze my hand. Behold the power of God. To receive him, I believe, should be interpreted within the context of the theology of John. It means to open up one's life to ongoing fellowship or communion with the risen Christ. John 17, 3. To receive Christ or feed upon Him as the sustenance of one's life. John 6, 53. Lest you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You see, a man is saved only by faith. Only by faith. Believing what God has said about God, about Himself, about the atoning work of Christ, the person of Christ, they're saved. 
But in that moment of salvation, of belief, they are opening their lives to the person of Jesus. And just because they prayed a prayer with a certain degree of sincerity is no true evidence. Because the heart is deceitfully wicked. How can you define the degree of sincerity in your own heart? You see, the evidence throughout all the New Testament is this. You believe unto salvation, and the evidence you believed is this. You are saved only by faith in Christ. But if you believe in Christ, your life will be open more and more to communion and fellowship with Him. It is not this flu shot mentality of an invitation of the gospel. We call men to repent and believe. And if they repent and believe truly in that moment, they are saved in that moment. But the evidence is more than just the sincerity of a prayer. It is a continuation of the working of God in their life through sanctification. Now, Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. First we must say something about the heart. It represents the core essence of what a man is. It is the seat of his intellect, mind, emotions, and will. Therefore it is absurd to think a man can believe in Christ with his heart and it not have a radical effect on the rest of his life. Let's look at the language. Would you like to receive Jesus in your heart? What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? Believe in your heart, but we've changed it to, would you like to ask him to come into your heart? Believe in your heart means to believe with the very core, the very essence of who you are. It doesn't mean you open up some secret chamber and ask him to come in. It is the testimony of Scripture and the interpretation of all sound evangelical scholars that we are saved by faith alone. So why does Paul seem to add confession as a requirement of genuine conversion? Let's look at the text again. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul throughout the entire book of Romans has said salvation only by faith, so why is he now adding confession? Paul is not contradicting the doctrine of faith alone, but is teaching that our public confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the evidence of believing in the heart. If someone is truly converted, they will publicly confess Christ in word and deed. That does not mean the same thing as presenting themselves before the church the night of their supposed conversion. If someone is truly converted, they will publicly confess Christ in word and deed. Why do I add word and deed? Because Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who confesses me as Lord. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now I am not saying that we are saved by faith and works. Not at all. I am a grace preacher. What I'm saying is that salvation involves a lost doctrine. It's called regeneration. And that when God saves a man, he is regenerating his heart, turns him into a new creature, and the evidence is this, he will live like a new creature. 
and he will confess Christ. That is, the man who has truly believed in his heart, his life will be marked by a biblical confession of Christ in word and deed. You will be able to see with his, hear with his mouth and see with his life that his faith is a genuine saving faith. Now, I want to give you, I want to put this in a... I want to put this really quickly in a cultural perspective. Let's say that we're all a church, about 20 people, first century Roman Empire. You know from the epistle of Romans that these Christians are being put to death, some of them. They're dying like sheep. All right, now let's say that we have a... a um, we're 20 of us, and we all work construction. So we're working on a, some kind of a building there in Rome. Construction, no problem, beautiful day. It's lunchtime, we're taking a break. Spring, we're laying out in the grass, having a good time, resting. And all of a sudden, though, we hear this. We hear drums. We look up and we see soldiers coming. And they're carrying a little altar. And on that altar is a little bowl of incense and a little fire. Built, and, and we become terrified. As all the construction guys come to their feet, most of them unbelievers, and there we are, a little church in the midst of them. The soldiers rally us all together, and they say, Come forth, pay homage to Caesar. And so the first guy, unbeliever, goes up there and gets a little bit of incense, throws it in the fire, and says, Caesar's Lord. Walks off as happy as he can be. The next one, and the next one, and finally it comes to the first of us, the Christians. And one of us walk up. Soldier prods him with the spear. Pay homage to Caesar. Jesus is Lord. And he dies. And the next one of us. Jesus is Lord. And he dies. And the next one of us. And we have taken that truth that Paul is teaching right here. That if you truly believe, you will confess Christ even though it costs you your life. We have taken that beautiful truth and reduced it down. If you pray a little prayer before a bunch of people in a church in America, you'd be guaranteed you're saved if you think you were sincere. That's not what it's talking about. Again, the moment a person calls upon Christ in faith, they are saved. But the evidence of salvation is not that one time in their life they were sincere when they prayed a prayer. The evidence of their salvation is, is their genuine repentance, is their faith, and do those both evangelical graces continue on in their life and grow? In other words, the evidence of justification by faith is the ongoing work of sanctification through the Holy Spirit. I hope that you heard what was said in that video and understood exactly what Paul Washer was saying. Now, I want to say something really quick, and that is, I don't always agree with everything Paul Washer says, and I, I didn't agree with everything he said in that video, although 99% of it 
I agreed with completely because it is biblical. The only thing I did not agree with was the statement that he made about not being able to lose your salvation. Um, he made one other statement that works has nothing to do with salvation. I would like to, because uh, I don't really know what he meant, so I would like to clarify uh, what the Bible actually says regarding salvation and where faith and works is concerned. Now, first off, the uh, the initial act of believing in your heart, having faith, and, you know, when you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, I believe that that is what is required for salvation. And then, as the book of Acts says, as well as other places, Paul also says it, but the book of Acts says that after you become a believer after you are born again that you must be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins and then Jesus Christ himself along with many many other places in the scriptures, as we are going to see, after we are initially become believers, after we initially enter into the body of Christ, works are definitely a part of our continued salvation. Yes, for sure, repentance and works are evidence of our salvation. But according to Jesus Christ and Paul and Jude, or excuse me, James, and other places in the New Testament, more than just our works are more than just evidence of salvation, but they are requirements of salvation. And we're going to see that by looking at the article I have here on the, the um, early church, the Anti-Nicene Church, as well as we're going to go to several scriptures to see that the Bible is clear that if you 
backslide, as we call it in modern Christianity, that once you become backslidden or lukewarm, you have literally turned away from the faith. Once you willfully sin, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, according to Hebrews 10. So, once that happens, you literally will lose your salvation, according to Jesus himself, as we're going to see in the book of Revelation. Um, you know, Jesus starts off with the very first church, uh, with the letter to the church of Ephesus, he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. So we see these people are obviously believers and followers of Christ. Just based on the fact that Jesus calls them a church at all. Or a candlestick at all. Is evidence that this is talking to believers and followers of Christ. These are Christians. Verse 4 says, though, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. In other words, the works that you did in the beginning when you became a believer and a follower of, of Christ. He says, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick unless, or it actually says, except thou repent. So, Jesus, and this is just one example, we're going to go over several, but this is just one example of Jesus telling believers that if they do not repent and go back to their first love and their first works, he is going to remove their salvation. That's what it means to remove their candlestick out of its place because their candlestick is what represents them as being a church. Now, according to this, um, we're going to go through this uh, article I have here and I'm going to try to skim through it uh, fairly quickly. Um, but not so quick as to where everyone is not able to, um, you know, understand what is being said here. It says, The Calvinist doctrine of once saved, always saved, 
or unconditional eternal security was not a doctrine that was taught by the ancient church, nor for that matter by any well-known theologian before John Calvin. The doctrine of unconditional eternal security teaches that the elect, the only humans who God chooses to redeem, will be the recipients of the per of the preserving power introduced by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and they will infallibly know that they are saved. These believers will be kept in the power of the Spirit and are eternally secure. They can never lose their salvation. Here is a summary of the Calvinist belief from the Canons of Dort. God, who is rich in mercy from his immutable purpose of election, does not wholly take away his Holy Spirit from his own, even in lamentable falls, nor does he so permit them to glide down that they should fall from the grace of adoption and the state of justification, or commit the sin unto death or against the Holy Spirit, that being deserted by him, they should cast themselves headlong into eternal destruction, so that not by their own merits or strength, but by the gratuitous mercy of God, they obtain it, that they neither totally fall from the faith and grace, nor finally continue in their paths and perish." The Canons of Dort, 1619. Only one problem. This doctrine is, in fact, completely foreign in the history of Christianity. John Calvin created this doctrine from a misinterpretation of Augustine's treatise on the gift of perseverance, written around A.D. 429. You see, Augustine believed it was possible to experience the justifying grace of God and yet not persevere to the end. Augustine did believe God's elect would certainly persevere to the end, but he denied that a person could know they were in the elect, and he also warned it was possible to be justified, but not among the elect. In Augustine's writings, he taught that initial justification and final perseverance of the elect by God's free gift of ongoing grace was two different things. Not until Calvin was unconditional election and permanent regeneration and certitude of final perseverance all connected. It's not a historical doctrine. This well-known and highly respected Calvinist theologian, John, Def John Jefferson Davis, wrote an article titled The Perseverance of the Saints, A History of the Doctrine. 
in the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society in June of 1991. What I find interesting about this article is that John Jefferson Davis concludes that the doctrine is a new doctrine that has no precedence in no precedent in history. You can click the link at the bottom of the quote to read the full article. And guys, I will put a link to this um, article that I am reading to you all that's up on the screen right now. I'll put a link to it in the description of this video on Facebook, I mean on YouTube. And uh, I will also see if I can put a link to the article in the comments of this uh, the video on Facebook because it's being multi-streamed to both YouTube and Facebook. So it says here, um, Calvin, Arminius, and Wesley agreed that if election were unconditional then final perseverance would logically follow as a matter of course. Augustine and, Aquin and Aquinas affirmed un unconditional election, but taught that believers did not enjoy infallible certitude of their election and hence of their final perseverance. Luther believed that the Christian could have certitude concerning the present state of grace, but not concerning final perseverance. Like the Roman Catholic tradition that preceded him and the Wesleyan tradition that succeeded him, Luther did not see regeneration as inextricably linked with final salvation. The Calvinistic tradition has understood election as unconditional, regeneration as permanent, and certitude or final perseverance as a genuine possibility for the believer. And the link to the perseverance of the saints, a history of the doctrine by John Jefferson Davis, is right here highlighted in blue for any who uh, want to read the entire article when they are reading or when they go to this article itself. It says, James Aiken, a Catholic theologian, said in his debate with Calvinist theologian James White that no one before Calvin taught that predestination to grace automatically entails predestination to glory. You can check that out for yourself. I did. I searched multiple books and called half a dozen Calvinist seminaries talking to their systematic theology and church history professors, and no one could name a person before Calvin who taught this thesis. They all said Calvin was the first. I even called John Jefferson Davis, a scholar who published an article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society on the history of this doctrine, a man who is himself a Calvinist. 
but who has researched the history of this doctrine thoroughly, and he said Calvin was the first to teach it. This poses a problem even for those who claim that they take their teachings exclusively from Scripture. Namely, how could a doctrine this important, if true, remain completely undiscovered for the first 1,500 years of church history? And, if Jesus comes back anytime soon, for three quarters of all church history? Other important doctrines have been known all through Christian history. Christians always knew, even when heretics denied it, that Jesus Christ was God. Christians always knew, even when heretics denied it, that Jesus Christ is fully man as well as fully God. And Christians always knew, even when the heretics denied it, that they were saved purely by God's grace. So when it turns out that Christians never knew that true Christians can never fall away, and then suddenly 1,500 years later someone starts claiming it, one has to ask, who is conveying the true teaching of the apostles, and who is teaching the heresy? Aiken's remarks are accurate and problematic for Calvinist scholars. I would encourage anyone who is concerned with knowing the absolute truth to research for themselves. I have, and I have to agree with James Aiken. If it was taught prior to Calvin, then show me the evidence. We are warned in, script in Scripture against false doctrines. As there were false prophets in the past history of our people, so you too will have your false teachers who will institute their own disruptive views and by disowning the Lord who brought them freedom will bring upon themselves speedy destruction. 2 Peter 2.1 See also Ephesians 4.14, 1 Timothy 1, 18-10 through 20, 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18, Titus 1, 10 through 11, Hebrews 13, 9, 2 Peter 3, 17, Romans 16, 17 through 18, 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4, Galatians 1, 8 through 9, and 2 Peter 2, verse 1. And I would uh, also add myself um, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in... I would say Hebrews ten twenty three through you know what I would say twenty three uh, verse twenty three all the way through verse thirty one at the very least. So, 
on top of the scriptures in this article, I would say Hebrews 10 verses 23 through 31. Back to the article, it says, The irony that I find is that while many anti-Catholics falsely accuse the Catholic Church of creating new doctrines, here we can see clearly that Calvin created a new doctrine that had never existed before. To his defense, perhaps Calvin was ignorant that he was taking Augustine out of context. In fact, it was from St. Augustine that Calvin mistakenly got both his misinterpreted doctrine on certitude or final perseverance and his even more distorted doctrine of predestination. You can read the words of Augustine himself in his treatise on the, pre on the predestination of the saints and on the gift of perseverance. Yes, the Catholic Church teaches and has always taught predestination, but not the same way as Calvin believed. Also, what I find interesting is that Calvinists will accept a teaching from John Calvin that had not existed ever before in Christianity for 1,500 years, based on a misinterpretation of Augustine, who lived in the supposed time that anti-Catholics accused the Catholic Church of being corrupted by Constantine. The contradictions never cease to amaze me, yet they will brush off the pre-Constantine early church fathers as unimportant and not relevant. The early church fathers are relevant and, imp and important. Now, it's obvious and it it's obviously easy to brush these early Christians off as irrelevant if they don't agree with your doctrine, but this doctrine can clearly be shown to have been an entirely new creation in the 1500s. If one cannot find that the early church did not believe this or taught this, and they had the same scripture as we do now, even better, because they could read the original Greek and Hebrew. Then an intelligent person could conclude that this doctrine is false. Were the early church fathers infallible? Well, no, but Calvin certainly was not either, and he lived 1,500 years after Christ not just a few years after. While the early church fathers did not agree on everything, when they speak with one voice on any particular subject, I think wisdom dictates that we should listen and give their voice a great deal of weight, which, by the way, they do speak with one voice on all the doctrines that the Catholic Church still teach to this day. Now... I would like to say, this is Jeremy, the remnant warrior, um, speaking. This article is, um, 
don't think that it is a Catholic. Uh, I don't think it's, it's written from a Catholic perspective. Yes, it actually was, I think. I, I really don't know, but it says, um, yeah, it, it um, is a Catholic uh, article, and it's a, uh, must be a Catholic website. I didn't know that whenever I, um, whenever I clicked on it and decided to use it tonight. But I will say this, other than what it says about the Catholic Church, um, not changing their doctrines since um, the anti-Nicene period and and the things it says about um, the Catholic Church um, still holding the same doctrines as it held from the time before Constantine all the way until now, except for those two obvious falsehoods, what it says about the Calvinist doctrines are 100% true. I mean, there is absolutely nothing that is said in this article that we just looked at that uh, goes against what true biblical doctrine regarding uh, eternal security it is completely, that article was completely accurate regarding what the Bible says versus what um, John Calvin and his doctrine on eternal security. Uh, everything that the article says about Calvin and how the doctrine did not be until Calvin is true. Now, Augustine is, um, you know, he is probably my, he's one of my least favorite uh, so-called church fathers. Now, I will say, I did not like that the article called um, the you know, the early church leaders as church fathers. And I'll say this, the anti-Nicene church leaders would have never allowed themselves to be called church fathers. Um, the anti-Nicene church leaders the would have considered only the apostles to be 
the church fathers, the fathers of the Christian church. Um, now, we are going to look at some scriptures ourselves right now uh, regarding what the Bible actually says about salvation and whether or not one can lose their salvation after they um, come into the body of Christ. Uh, the video we watched earlier, um, even if, like myself, you don't agree with everything Paul Walker teaches, um, you have to admit that he is definitely not a hyper-grace teacher. Um, you know, he believes in and preaches grace and you know i believe myself in salvation uh by faith through grace and i i believe that nobody can become born again and enter into a covenant relationship with the messiah and come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. There is no amount of good works that we can do that would give us salvation. However, that does not mean that salvation, I mean that works are not a part of salvation. Works are a part of salvation. And, um, you know, this is something that is very easily proven. Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, sorry, I know I'm moving, but for some reason, every time I, I don't know if it's uh, the way my spotlight is or what, but it seems like every time I turn my face a certain way, um, it's like it, uh, I don't know. I see in the camera on the screen, it's like there's this uh, glare on my face. But anyways, uh, like I was saying earlier, the in Revelation chapter 3, the very first church written to was the church of Sardis. And um, I mean, uh, Revelation chapter 2, the very church, the very first church written to was Ephesus. And um, the second church that was written to was the church of Smyrna. And Smyrna is only one of two of the seven churches that Jesus wrote to in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that he didn't, he did not threaten to sorry, I'm reading uh, your comment, Matthew. Um, yeah, um, 
I agree. Uh, Phil would definitely be. And, you know, I've had Phil Baker um, and BDK both on the show before. And um, we we did discuss the early church and salvation. And I... Um, am more than ready to have another Kingdom Concepts episode. Um, Matthew, I know that you know exactly what the Kingdom Concepts episodes were all about because the last, um, the last time I did a Kingdom Concepts um, segment, not, not an episode, but a series of episodes, you know, you were one of my guests, and the other um, episodes in that uh, series, I um, played David Berceau's uh, audio of exactly what the early church believed about salvation, and uh you know, you're right. Um, Phil Baker would be a great person to have on to talk about it. And, man, <laughs> I tell you what, I would love to have David Berceau on. Um, and, you know, I maybe I could talk to BDK and Phil and find out um, the best way about reaching out to... David Berceau, because, um, you know, he's been on with uh, Phil and uh, BDK at least twice, just that I know of, um, and everything that I believe uh, regarding the doctrine of salvation, uh, seriously, came from the anti-Nicene church. Um, you know, I uh, have a copy of the anti-Nicene fathers. Um, I actually have several. I have one that I got from Scroll Publishing. Um, I also have uh, a couple that um, they're uh, books. They're not actually copies of you know, what you would get for $5 from the Scroll Publishing website. One is a book called um, What the Early Church Believed. And the other one is just called... Uh, I think it's just called Early Church Fathers. And it's just an app. But... um you know, that's not me calling them fathers. Of course, that's just what the app's called. But we're going to look here really quick. Um, I'm, I'm, um, I was trying to decide whether I was going to read Smyrna's letter or not. Um, I think I will. Unto the Church of Smyrna, uh, write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, 
but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Judeans, and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye, sh and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So you see, the letter to the church of Smyrna, it didn't come with a warning. It did not come with Jesus threatening to take away their lamps, I mean, their uh, candlestick, or take away their name from the book of life, the way that other um, churches' letters did. In other cases, like we're about to see with the church of Pergamos, other churches, he, Jesus told them if they did not repent, that he would, in fact, take away their salvation. To the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But nevertheless I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name, written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receive it. So, we see here that they had people inside their church that held the doctrine of Balaam and were teaching people to eat things sacrificed unto idols as well as committing fornication. But worse than that, they had people who believed and held to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans, or the Nicolaitans, however you want to say it, 
these were the Gnostics. They believed in, they worshipped the female goddess. The They believed in the female Holy Spirit, the what we um sometimes hear in the Hebrew roots movement this doctrine that there is a female essence of the father and we see it in Gnosticism and these were the Gnostics and the Gnostics what they believed was they believed in uh, this female aspect to God called Sophia and Sophia is just another name for the Shekinah which is the Jewish doctrine of the female aspect of God in the Sephirot tree. And all of these things are the same. They are all one and the same. And, uh, you know, we, um, we see that there is several churches and they are all told the same thing. There are five out of seven churches that our Lord Jesus Christ himself tells the church that there, that there are believers now, not all of those in the church, but that there are some inside the church who, because they have fallen away from the faith in one form or another, are going to lose their candlestick, which means they are going to lose their ability to be called the church. They are going to lose their salvation. Um, you know, Jesus tells the church in Thyatira that they suffer, because they suffer as the woman Jezebel, the, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce his servants to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed to idols, that he's going to cast her into a sickbed, and them who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And it says that he's going to kill their children with death so that all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will, listen, I will give unto every one of you 
according to your works. I mean, it doesn't get any plainer than that. <sighs> but unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, but that which ye have already and that is to hold fast until I come. He that overcometh and keepeth my works until the end. Listen to what it says. He that overcometh and, that and is so important, and keepeth my works. Do the things which Jesus commanded of us in the Gospels until the end. To him only will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I have received of my father. And in Sardis, <laughs> Jesus tells them that because he has not found thy works perfect, he says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, because they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I, listen, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. In other words, he that doesn't, he will blot out their name from the book of life and will not confess their name before the Father. I mean, these things should be enough to make all of us stop and think about what we believe regarding the doctrine of salvation. Because in most churches, it is not taught the right way. Eternal security is taught. Even though Jesus is very clear in his parables that uh, you can lose your salvation. And also, um, I believe I quoted this earlier, um, 
but if for some reason I didn't allow me to say again that in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, I believe starting in verse 23, um, I think it was 23 through 21, I've got to look to be completely sure, but in Hebrews, uh, Yep, verse 23, starting in verse 23, you can really read all of Hebrews 10 to make sure that uh, you don't take anything out of context and no scriptures are being cherry-picked. But let's read really fast Hebrews 10, starting in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For, and this is the money verse, verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. So of how much more sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy of who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified to be an unholy thing, and hath despised the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Valenge, sorry, Vengeance belongeth unto me, and I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, that verse alone are those verses alone? Brothers and sisters, if I had found and read Hebrews chapter 10, when I, just when I was in seminary, or when I 
when I first started preaching, because when I first started preaching, it was uh, while I was in seminary. And trust me, just because you go to seminary does not mean you know the truth of Scripture, because in seminary, even more so than in the church, are we taught, and I say we as in uh, pastors, are taught Scripture from a specific viewpoint and more times than not it's a dispensational viewpoint and um, you know I started preaching like I said while I was like it was like my first year in seminary and you know I would go and preach um, at churches anytime um, someone would ask me to come and fill in for the pastor or you know once I um, because any of you who have seen my testimony know that my son died um, before I finished my first year of seminary and so I actually uh, dropped out of seminary um, before I started my second year and I did not go back <laughs> I didn't go back for a very long time um, it was uh, it was over it was a little over three years after my son died before I went back and um, you know, during that time, I did not, I, I, I believed in God, of course, in my heart and in the back of my mind, but I refused to admit that I believed in God and I was so angry with him because I blamed him for the loss of my son that, you know, I did a lot of things that I am very ashamed of. Um, I, anybody that I witnessed to and, you know, maybe one to the Lord, although I do not like that saying, um, I probably undid every bit of that during the time in between when I left seminary and when I surrendered my life back to Christ and went back to school because, you know, I, uh, I refused to let God even be talked about around me. And, uh, you know, I was very blasphemous. Um, I would curse God to his face. Uh, I was, I, I shouldn't be here right now. The good Lord should have struck me dead where I stood many times. But in his infinite grace and mercy, he allowed me to live and, 
I suffered many things during my backslidden years, but each one of them I deserved 100% and I didn't realize it at the time, but everything that happened from the time that I lost my son, you know, the even my son dying itself, that and everything that happened from then all the way until right now um, was God's will and I would not have been able to come to the truth or reach the people um, for the cause of Christ and spread the gospel all over the world the way that I have been blessed to be able to do if I had not lost my son. And, you know, when the scripture says that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, it's 100% truth, brothers and sisters, because as much as it hurt and as much as it did not seem like truth, at the time, um, when I lost my son and every horrible thing that I did and all of the wicked unholy blasphemous things that I was a part of after I lost my son they all allowed me a way back to Christ because they eventually caused me to hit rock bottom and more than that, they made me a better minister and they humbled me tremendously because I will be honest, before I lost my son and when I was a diehard dispensationalist who believed in once saved, always saved, um, I was also very cocky and very, very, um, there's really no nice way to put it. I was... extremely
there's many words I could use trying to think of the best one that fits this particular situation of mine. Um, I was full of pride. I was very prideful. And it was selfish pride. And the Lord humbled me. That is exactly what he did. He humbled me. And because of that, I have been able to reach people who have gone through the things that I went through. I have been able to reach, my wife and I have been able to help families who have lost their children. You know, um, I have been able to help people who have struggled with addiction. And I would have never um, had the platforms that the Lord has blessed me with in the... Uh, that he, and he's just blessed me with these platforms just in the past three years. And the platforms that I've had to, I've had at my disposal to use to further the cause of Christ. Um, just an example of one, the Remnant Report. Just the podcast alone, not the live streams here on YouTube or Facebook, just the podcast is in, um, well, I've got to check because I know that it's gone up since the last time I um, posted anything about it, but the last time I posted, which was several months ago, the Remnant Report audio podcast was in 17 different countries around the world. So, 17, I mean, we were able to, the Lord gave me a way to spread the gospel, the true gospel, not the watered down Sinner's Prayer, Once Saved, Always Saved version that I would have been preaching had it been a time before I lost my son or if I had never lost my son, then... I don't know if I would have even ever had the platform to start with, but I do know that even if I would have been able to reach the people in 17 different countries around the world for the gospel, the gospel that I would have been presenting to them would have been a false gospel. And I thank the Lord. I am I, I'm so thankful that He has brought me to a place in my life where I can be thankful for all of the things that... I've been allowed to go through both good and bad. I never, ever, 
If you would have told me in 2012 through 2014 or 15 that I would have been thankful for the Lord allowing me to lose my son in order for not only me and my family to truly be saved, but so that I would be able to correctly spread the gospel to people all over the world, as well as help those who have lost children and also those who suffer from addiction, there's no way that I would have believed you. No way. Because I was too much, I was in my grief, holding on to my grief way too much and way too hard to have ever believed that. But thank God, he is the great physician, and that means he heals us physically and mentally and spiritually. So, he gave me the opportunity to correctly spread the gospel around the world. And also to help those who have gone through or are currently going through those horrible situations themselves that I would not wish on my worst enemy. You know, it, it could be satan worshipers and i wouldn't i would not wish them to go through the things that my wife and i did with losing our son and the consequences that came from us losing our son but like i said the lord works all things out for good even tragedies horrible tragedies like that and because of those horrible tragedies i and my wife both have come to an understanding of the scriptures that we would have never come to otherwise and we have been able to help people suffering through the same things that we suffered and I am very thankful for every bit of it. I truly am. Guys, remember that in order to reach the mountain of God, before we can get to the mountain of God, we must go through the valleys to reach the mountain. I mean, think about it. It's like that no matter if it's the spiritual things like 
I was just talking about, obviously, or the literal mountains. Before you can climb the mountain, you have to go through the valleys. The valleys come before the mountain. And that is what I am going to leave you guys with. Um, I hope that you all listened to tonight's program. I hope that you all heard what was said in the videos and that you understood what was being said in everything that I played tonight as well as the things that were read on that website, the article on the website, and what we looked at and talked about in the scriptures. Um, you know, these things are not to be taken lightly. The Word of God is the ultimate source of truth. And all of Scripture is profitable for doctrine. But even though that's the case, all of Scripture has to be interpreted through the doctrine of Christ. And I am going to work on, for sure, uh, getting um, sorry, I was trying to uh, make it to where that glare would go away and you could uh, still see the background. Of course, we've got Neo back there uh, saying you know, the sinner's prayer is a 19th century invention with no biblical warrant or support. Uh, anyway, um, please again share tonight's program with as many people as possible, especially, especially pastors and those who attend the 501c3 denominational churches. Um, this is something that we are going to be looking at more and more in the future. I am going to be doing my best to reach out to Phil as well as David Berceau and Hopefully, I can get one or both of them to come on and discuss the things that we talked about tonight. Um, so, again, if you are just tuning in tonight, please go back and watch from the beginning. And... Also, share this program with as many people as humanly possible. And if you're watching from YouTube, 
please, 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 please hit the like button. Because the more likes we have, the more search engines can find this video. And not only that, but the more that Facebook will recommend this video to people. And the more people will be able to see it. So, guys, um, that brings us to the end of tonight's program. And I am going to leave you with this final thought and these final words. Um, and that is, prove all things. Don't listen to anything that I say or that any other YouTuber, uh, podcaster, preacher, teacher, regardless of who they are. If they are a human being, do not take what they say at face value. Prove all things research these things for yourself. Everything that you're going to hear on the Remnant Report is usually, uh, I don't usually uh, quote scripture without telling you uh, where it came from, without quoting the chapter and verse of the book it came from but if I do ever forget and do that then you can look up the scripture just from the words in the scripture uh, from a google search um, or something like you know the uh, blue letter bible but also, make sure that when you are listening to a sermon on Sunday morning or you are watching somebody teach or preach in a YouTube video, make sure that you have your Bibles right there with you so that you can make sure that what they are quoting or reading is actually what the Bible says, that they are not adding or subtracting anything from the scriptures that they're using. You know, uh, that includes me. I want you guys to prove the things that I say. I don't want you to take my word for it. I truly don't. And again, that's going to do it for tonight's program. So, um, you know, for Kingdom Productions and the Next Chapter Radio Network, I am the Remnant Warrior saying good night, 
God bless and grace and peace. I love each and every one of you guys. I hope that you will all come back again next week.